The D'Amico Show starts now. I'm Steve D'Amico, joined here with a very special guest, Ricky Sieber. I have my friends Emily Smith and Evan Spann with me today. Welcome to the show, Ricky. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Of course. Ricky is a psychiatry resident out of Boston. What's that like? Um, well, it can be pretty crazy sometimes, as you might imagine. Um, it's it's a really special job, though. I'm, I'm all over the place in Boston. I work in emergency departments, seeing um, patients with sort of mental health crises. I have my outpatient clinic at another hospital. I work at a community health center in downtown Boston. So I'm sort of doing a little bit of everything in hospital, out of hospital. Um, but I'm doing uh, you know psychiatry all the time. That's a lot of fun. Do you work with people of all different ages? Mostly adults. So psychiatry residency is like uh, four years. And most of what you do in those four years is treating um, adults and older adults. If you want to be able to treat children and adolescents, like I see a handful of um, kids and adolescents, but you can do extra training two extra years after the first four years to be able to do that. And you do a lot of overnight shifts. Well, yeah, I, uh, I'm actually coming off of one last <laughs> night. Um, I worked, so today's uh, Saturday. I worked all day during the day on Friday, and then I was in the ER from 6 to 9 a.m. this morning, got some sleep, and oh, wow. came out here. <laughs> I know Emily can relate to that, and Evan, Definitely. too. They all kind of have a little bit of nocturnal yeah, I was a bartender, so I dealt with people a little differently. <laughs> right. Different medicine. Right. Yes, I can imagine. But uh, maybe, maybe sometimes the similar problems. Probably. Just different <laughs> location. Yeah. So we're just more honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> the, way, the way you spend your days, do you have like office hours where you're seeing patients and then you're also like, are they inpatient? Is that why you're overnight? Yeah. So the overnight shift, I... Um, I cover the entire hospital, so I see new people coming into the emergency room. I also cover um, the inpatient psychiatry unit at my hospital and um, any sort of medical or surgical patients who are also in hospital who have a psychiatric problem overnight. Like they might say, uh, I want to kill myself. I can't you know, deal with this medical illness anymore, and that scares everyone, so then I get called. Um, so I do that sort of at night. And then, yeah, as you mentioned, during the day, um, I work in uh, an outpatient clinic where I, uh, I see my own panel of outpatients. So they have, you know, monthly to every three month appointments. And then I have a couple of people I see in therapy every week. Do you feel like you've had to build up kind of like a strong mind to deal with a lot of like the traumas you face? Yeah, I mean, I get asked that a lot. And I... I think that really like the key is just like talking to other people who have been through it. So like I have, I have weekly meetings with like more senior psychiatrists and therapists who I sort of process, um, you know, challenging topics and challenging patients with. Um, I have my own therapist who I sort of talk through that with. And then um, I'm in a class of 15 other doctors too. So we're all sort of going through it together and, um, sort of supporting each other through through the rough times totally that's awesome that they have like support like with senior psychiatrists and things like that that must be really helpful to be able to like review cases and vent and different things yeah totally i mean i think that it's right it's not like surgery where you're in the operating room and you have like a senior surgeon like um, saying like cut here don't cut here um 
right? Like having someone like sitting in therapy or in session with you would be really disruptive. And so there's no one actually there teaching you how to do therapy in the moment. It's actually like in these um, supervision hours where you meet with the more senior doctors and you sort of talk about how things are going and challenging cases where that's like actually where you learn a lot of sort of the process of doing our work. That's really cool. Yeah. But it's almost like you take on so much of the their pain so like you're saying you almost have to cleanse yourself going to your own psychiatry and then that psychiatrist has to go someone else it's like <laughs> we all see trauma inception there's, there's a big network where you know like i'm seeing someone who's seeing someone who's seeing someone so yeah um it's it's tough but it's uh it's special good work that you know most of the people i see are you know generally doing uh, better than when they started in treatment and they're really appreciative for the help so I really love the work you feel fulfilled at the end of the day that well you, most days you've helped <laughs> <laughs> I give you a lot of credit too because I find so I'm a I was a nurse and doing like overnights and stuff but now I'm a um, women's health nurse practitioner mm -hmm. and I find that a lot of like my pregnant patients with um, psychiatric stuff you end up like pretty much adopting everything being an OBGYN because when they're pregnant, you just kind of end up owning them and a lot of them don't have primary cares. And right. I, I really like, I love it so much and love helping people and really feel for people with like substance abuse and mental illness and stuff. But I definitely find those patients the most challenging too because sometimes I get really frustrated because I'll bend over backwards for them and then their follow-up isn't good, which is like classic of someone with a mental illness. So I think it requires a lot of patience too that I really respect. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of times, you know, you have to sort of check in and, and see like how much sort of effort is someone putting in on their own versus how much effort are you doing as sort of their nurse practitioner or their doctor um you know and like you said I, I think there are a few things in medicine that scare people more than like pregnant folks and um and mental health problems and you know as i'm sure you know and i don't know if the listeners know but like Pregnancy and the time around pregnancy is like the highest risk time of people's lives to have like depression or even psychosis, right? Like postpartum depression, postpartum yeah. psychosis. It's um, really scary. And you, I imagine, shoulder a lot of that in your line of work. Yeah, no, definitely. I'm currently pregnant right now, too. So. Oh, well. <laughs> and, I, and she's psychotic. No, so. <laughs> no, I have anxiety, depression, How are you? OCD. Yeah. I have a therapist. So in pregnancy, I'm, like, so lucky in pregnancy. I do really well. Like, I'm never nauseous. Like, I always say, like, my worst thing in pregnancy is my mind. Like, my yeah. anxiety, depression get a lot worse. But... I have a lot of good support and I'm medicated. Yeah, so. <laughs> I love to hear that. I love that for you. Why do you how, can I ask how far along are you? 17 weeks. Oh, congrats. Thank uh, you. That's so exciting. Four months, more than four months. I know, it's crazy how fast it's going. Are you getting a little bump or anything? I think I have one. Oh, uh, there's a little something coming in. Well, she's wearing black. <laughs> Why do you think there's such a wide range of... Um, women's inner um, responses to pregnancy by some love it they feel great and i don't mean just like the physiological i mean like why psychologically do two women suffer like that and others don't yeah i mean i think it's hard to say i think you know as with most things in, in mental illness it, it's not like as clear-cut as like you know your arteries and your heart got blocked so you had a heart attack it's hard to sort of piece together exactly why something happens I think, you know, um, in and around pregnancy, there are a lot of hormonal shifts that happen. So, of course, there's 
biology happening that's impacting mood. Um, and then like, you know, like you mentioned, a lot of folks um, struggle with substance use or anxiety, depression already, and then you layer those hormonal shifts on top of it. Um, some other folks like don't have partners or supported family, and it's just like a time of huge change. Like biology's changing, your life is changing, your family's changing, and um, that's hard even if you have a ton of supports, um, and a lot of people don't. Yeah. yeah, my mom was like absolutely psychotic when she was expecting me just lashing out at people violent and the thing is i was adopted so it's like <laughs> the hormones like it's not really a valid excuse kind of a uh, effect. Uh, evan has two kids how do you how do you feel like you experience the pregnancies differently oh uh, i mean much easier for me <laughs> i mean it's definitely hard to see someone you love go through all those changes. I mean, the first one, especially because you have no idea really what to expect. Um, but I also think that the culture has changed a lot. I think that, you know, people in general expect a lot from women and moms. And there's like a lot of pressure to do everything perfectly. Keep yourself in perfect health. Do everything for the kids. You know, you can't take a day off or a second off doing it. You're always worrying. So it, it was it was beautiful and hard at the same time. You know, you, you see them changing and going through a lot of hard times, but also growing and, and finding like a new appreciation. So it's, it's a little bit of both. I think, you know, like to that end too, there's like this sort of social expectation that like this is an exciting time and a happy time. Exactly. And like you should be happy. And but so, also many, perfect. so many, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, like you, you can't like, you need to be getting your sleep and you need to be there for the baby all the time. And it's like, oh my God, like uh, there's just like so much sort of expectation that like when things aren't okay, yeah, um, that like, I, people I definitely, feel down on themselves. And I, I definitely think... felt that too because that was like always my dream was to get, become pregnant and it still is. But when I had Colton, um, my first like when I got pregnant, I was really depressed and like I was like, oh my, I was feeling so guilty because I was like, I'm so lucky. I got pregnant right away. There's people who can't get pregnant. That's been my dream, but I felt depressed and it wasn't that I was depressed. I was pregnant, but just my depression really kicked in and I remember seeing my midwife and I was just kind of, like I was almost in tears and was just like I just haven't like been feeling like myself and she like told me that this is the happiest time in my life and I should go journal. Yeah. And I was like I loved her and but I was like oh my god like talk about like I was like ready to cry. It's all downhill from here. Totally yeah. dismissed like, me. I know. She's like go watch Schindler's List and maybe you'll appreciate your life a little bit more. It's never great when anyone tells you how you should feel during your life let alone a therapist. Yeah. yeah she was like go journal sign. and I was like I'm go telling journal. you I'm like struggling right now and so now go whenever I else. see patients especially like I always most important focus that they have the mental health history and like I always say to them I'm like and how are you doing because pregnancy is really hard and I see you have a history of anxiety depression and it can get a lot worse when you're pregnant or I yeah. see you have bipolar and it can get a lot worse and then again like the expectations to be perfect yeah. and you know a lot of times people are like oh I'm gonna go off all my meds which I made that mistake now I stayed mm -hmm. on my meds mm -hmm. and you know it's just it's so much responsibility growing a human and there's just constant guilt like well, and that's, and that's the, right the during pregnancy part right like to say nothing of after pregnancy right I mean, I mean, that's a whole different thing you don't sleep 
you're like up all night trying to like feed the baby, change the baby. And it's like, oh my God, like if there's nothing else, it's like more important for mental health. Like you have to get a good night's sleep. And it's like, yeah. Well, and for women to, you know, get their body back is always something that I, I hear that, you know, they've sacrificed so much for so long that, you, you know, at least I definitely had the um, kind of idea in my head. Once you give birth, that's like, okay, you kind of just like snap back. You're, you're back to yourself. You're feeling good and everything. All the hormones are back. And it's just like not like that at all. Yeah. And back to the, um, you know, expectations and everything. I feel like as much as it's yeah. talked about, like, you should be happy, you're having a kid, all these things are going on. They don't ever talk about how clinical depression is such a high risk. That's something that's not talked about and open and in discussion and everything. Yeah, I think they're those blanket statements like it's a woman's most happy time ever. And then also the postpartum is kind of glossed over. Even if it's acknowledged, like it's given a timeline that might not be all too accurate. Because what if three years after you have your child, something is setting in where you're like, whoa, like I'm I'm depressed. It's like, no, no, no postpartum, that should end. Like after a few weeks. Right. You're, you're past the expiration date for postpartum. It's like, postpartum is no- technically a year. That's what they call it is like your postpartum period is a year after birth. yeah but you could still get depression or oh, be yeah. be dealing with physiological issues after that and i feel like there's this like bounce back culture and you see it like especially in well celebrities celebrities like a kylie jenner who has like six pack like a week after giving birth it's like this is impossible yeah. to she achieve also has like wet nurses and is getting a good night's sleep personal trainer chefs like yeah I'm, all these things this like thing, people to come in and take care you of your kid even, while you sleep you, yeah, you can't even have time to like eat like when i had a newborn and i had a supportive husband so i don't even know how like single moms do it with numerous other kids because i remember like hours and hours would go by and i'd be like oh i haven't like eaten or drank anything because you're so focused on that yeah. child and what what i've heard of like a lot of these kind of veins so celebrities do that are pregnant like i don't know if this is 100 percent true but i've heard maybe someone could say if this is not medically sound but after they give birth like they'll immediately put them into a surgery and like liposuck and like start like carving their body back into a fit shape yeah i don't know but don't isn't know that sounds, insane sounds reasonable it i sounds believe like, it sounds like that would happen yeah. it's like well it don't, right. don't you want to feel your yeah. child's heart rest it's like well no i want my I'm going Brazilian on a talk show first. next week. <laughs> I gotta look good. Do you want me to just put the baby on your chest? You can put the baby on my new ass. Like once, <laughs> once I get them. Who knows if that's true? But like, I know that's like kind of the mentality. I feel like that's not. It's not healthy. I met someone over the summer, and she was so nice. And I hope she doesn't listen to this. But she was from like Southern Florida, in Allen. Um, oh, yeah. And she um she doesn't have kids yet, and so I went to a bachelorette, and there was only like select three of us: Evan's wife, Amanda, and then another girl. And we were just talking about like you know kids and your body and all that. And she she like definitely has had work done, and it yeah. comes from a different culture than the Massachusetts culture. And she was like, I just want to have like a C section and an immediate tummy tuck after. And we we're like, okay. And then I was like, I'm like, that's not how it works. Do you know? Like the amount of swelling and like a C-section isn't like, oh, I'll just do that. It's major surgery and the recovery and the risks. Oh, my God. But yeah, I, I don't think people get it. <laughs> people <laughs> have different priorities. <laughs> I, I feel like since it's like nowadays with social media, there's almost like when you're putting it out there that you're pregnant, there's almost like a post rollout schedule that people are anticipating. It's like, well, I need to see the baby. Then I need to see photos of you with the baby. And like, 
sounds like your friend was like, I need to make sure like I look good and I feel like myself going into this public display postpartum where before social media, it's like a woman can vanish for years. Like she's not going to be photographed and up for public consumption after she has her child, but kind of like that's the focus now. Yeah. 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 I feel like that's crazy. I'm wondering what your take on or your definition of what depression is. I always like hearing what people have to say because it's like it's such like an interesting, almost like abstract combination of physiological, psychological. What is your d- definition on what depression is? Oh, my God. Well, uh, <laughs> you could have prepped me here. Um, you know, I, I think that so there are a couple of different definitions I think that we can sort of operate under. I think most, if you ask most psychiatrists, uh, most folks who work in mental health, right, we use what's called the DSM-5, um, the right. Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. I um, thought that was dick sucking. Man. <laughs> <laughs> I've been Just reading to, that all wrong. To, to be clear here. Um, <laughs> I was I waiting for it to move up to six, seven, eight. I was like, Let's get past five here. Come on. Five's no problem. <laughs> um, well, so so in my version of the DSM, um, <laughs> there's um, you know it's it's basically like this encyclopedia of different um, kinds of mental illnesses, and there are diagnostic criteria that um, we sort of interview patients, you know, and and sort of see if, for instance, they're having trouble sleeping, if they're not as interested in things that they like to do in the past, if they're feeling guilty or worthless about things, if they've had changes in their energy and appetite. They're thinking about hurting themselves. And so like you sort of interview them asking towards those kinds of symptoms or experiences, and then you sort of apply the diagnostic criteria. And um, at the end, you might say like, based on what you've told me, um, you meet criteria for major depressive disorder. So I think clinically, when we talk about depression, that's often what we mean is like, does someone meet diagnostic criteria for a depressive disorder? Um, that said, like, I think that, you know, human experience is so much broader and richer than trying to sort of pin people down to a set number of, um, you know, criteria in an encyclopedia. And so, you know, I see people all the time who like maybe they're feeling down and they're not sleeping well and they're, you know, they don't have very much of an appetite they wouldn't necessarily meet diagnostic criteria for major depressive disorder, but they have the experience of feeling down and feeling depressed, right? I think that there's like a distinction between like maybe someone's experience of having low mood and being off versus like what we might call clinical depression, but right. we might call both of those people depressed just in a different sense. Right. That makes sense. I, I have a friend and he, his definition of depression, he simplifies it down to like, depression is inflammation of your brain. And if you have inflammation in any part of your body, it then affects your brain and makes it inflamed and then you're depressed. And I feel like that's kind of oversimplified, but it's almost like he views all of mental health like in physical terms. Mm. So whatever he's consuming, whatever he's eating, drinking, sunlight, oxygen, his environment, EMFs, that's his like formula mm-hmm. for his- And is your friend medically trained like our friend <laughs> over here? He, no, he, he's not. And <laughs> his definition of it is annoying to deal with because anytime he's being a prick, 
he'll just attribute it to something in his environment. Like yeah. the other day I was telling him about something and I was like super excited. I'm like, oh yeah, there's a new opportunity coming up. And he's kind of just like making fun of me and trolling me. I was like, all right, fuck off. And like I ended the call and then he texted me later. He's like, sorry, I had elderberry today. Uh, I was like, yeah, so it absolves him. Of, the <laughs> right. elderberry absolves him of any job. sort of responsibility. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The military. It's like, it was like a running joke out. where it's like, Hey, sorry, uh, I called you a piece of shit. I had tart cherry. And yeah, like, right. Okay, like, I'm not sure if that excuses your behavior. Well, I would say it doesn't, you no. know. Um, and, and, but I think that your friend is also on to something, right? Is that, like, there are, as we've talked about already here, like, there are definite, like, biological factors that sort of play into your experience of, of your mind and your mental health. Um but that's not the whole story, right? No, it's it's not. I feel like it's always a combination and it's a mixture of things for every person. Like if you look at even football players that have their head traumas and brain injuries, that's probably way more so dealing with inflammation. But then you have other people who their body might not have inflammation, but they have significant life events that are causing them to feel very depressed. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that's what makes... Um it makes psychiatry so like hard and exciting and at times like frustrating. It's like trying to interview people and like learn about their life circumstances, how they're feeling lately, their medical history, um, their family history, and sort of like trying to stitch together all of these different pieces of like their life and their biology um, and trying to understand how it is that like this person has come to me today and like, how can I best help them? And I think you're you're exactly right. In the spectrum of of mental problems or cognitive problems, um, like NFL players who get hit in the head a bunch, right? Like that seems to fall more towards the biological end of the spectrum. There's only so many hits that your brain can take before the wheels start to sort of fall off the wagon. Mm-hmm. And on the other side of the coin, right? Like say. Uh, a dear loved one dies, right? Like there's stuff going on biologically, but that feels very different than like the blood vessels in your brain and the tissue of your brain being repeatedly traumatized physically. Right. Uh, My friend, he also has an autoimmune issue. So I think that's also why his definition has really skewed to inflammation Inflammation, because he does have signs of inflammation on the outside. So I think it's almost like, made him very myopic with how he views everything Mm -hmm. so he'll disregard a lot of his other maybe psychological issues outside of that and he's like no this all comes down to this i remember one time he told me that he uh so he grew up living near lax the airport and he was saying that he went to a doctor and the doctor did testing on him and said that he had some of the highest like concentrations of jet fuel particles in his body (laughs) in like the entire state that's yeah. a lot. And after he told me that, <laughs> I, I wouldn't know how to test for it. I wouldn't either. Yeah. But after he told me that, I was like, you fill up my tank real quick? Like, uh, <laughs> prices are crazy. You know, that maybe, maybe so. I mean, I, I He's don't the know. reason why Delta is so expensive. <laughs> <laughs> You're mad that you have to pay for that. If you have to pay for that carry on, you can blame this motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I think it is all very interesting, but. I think bottom line is it's not one size fits all for anything to do with health. And I think you even see that with um, diets and like veganism versus like a keto diet or any of these types of things where 
sometimes people can get very dogmatic about it. It's like, no, you have to be vegan. Like you need to be eating this way. It's like, well, that might not work for this person. Yeah. So very everyone, preachy. everyone needs to find like the balance that that works for them. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, for, uh, for relatively complicated problems, like mental health conditions or obesity, um, where there are like so many different factors weighing in, like we've discussed, right? Like if anyone had a silver bullet, they'd be the richest person. Um, right. Um, but that doesn't exist. Um, it's not like we have, um, you know, magic cure for, obesity or for depression or schizophrenia um and so yeah i think to that end um with diet exercise um surrounding yourself with support medications if you need it therapy if you need it like all of these things are sort of tools in your toolbox to try to best um best manage any problems so, so most of the patients that you see are a more urgent at risk you're not seeing the a Wall Street uh, banker who's like, hey, I might be a narcissist. And then it's like you're dealing with more high risk. Well, I, I think it depends on the setting. I mean, you know, I, I think ten, you know, the, in the emergency room, the folks coming in tend to be more in crisis. Um, whereas, you know, folks who are doing relatively well um, in their lives and are not in crisis are sort of stable and able to be seen like every week and um, therapy where rather than talking about you know why are you feeling like um killing yourself today and why are you thinking about you know hanging yourself or jumping off of a skyscraper like um maybe instead we can do a little more um, self-exploration and um sort of um therapeutic work and if and if you only have mass health maybe you can do some journaling and (laughs) think about it yeah i mean it's can i have prozac you can have a five-star binder yeah (laughs) i I think you're touching on an important point right like there there aren't enough of us uh it's so hard you know uh, for for even folks with insurance to be seen by a psychiatrist and so yeah, I mean, even harder for folks with mass health and even harder for people still who have no insurance. I mean, there's just such a shortage. And I think it's maybe a commentary of the late capitalist hellscape that we're living in, that everyone is like the kids aren't all right. People aren't doing well these days. And, yeah. Um, you know, the, uh, for better or worse, there's um, there's no shortage of work for us. Even the so I've been su- substituting at a middle school and it's funny, like the vernacular, even of these kids, like the words they use, they're fifth, sixth, seventh grade, and they're using words like, he's traumatizing me, or like, uh, I'm dealing with this trauma, where it's like, I feel like we never heard or even used that word, unless you're like reading a book about like a burn victim trauma or something. <laughs> you aren't using trauma to like describe interactions with people. Yeah, and like, I mean, I, I grew up in Alabama and, um, you know, back there if you were the kid in therapy you'd get made fun of like you just didn't talk about mental health problems or worries you know like the idea of being traumatized it's like you know get over it exactly Um, i mean is it true that the flag sticks on golf courses are confederate there is (laughs) (laughs) um well i i can neither confirm nor deny that but i think you might be onto something do you feel like kids are more tapped into their emotions or are we living at a time where it's kind of like you know there's we're not reeling them in as much. We're kind of making them feel, I don't, I don't know, Emily, do you have a word for that? Like I've heard it's like p- pussifying them. It's like, <laughs> that's not the best word for it, but you know what I mean? Like we're, like coddling we're, we're, ca- we're coddling them and we're putting them with kid gloves yeah, I mean, uh, not too much. You know, uh, 
I don't know. I don't really know that I have an opinion on that. I think that like maybe what we're seeing and what you might be seeing in your school is like, well, I mean, Massachusetts, like, you know, I think it's like you're the cool kid in class if you're in therapy. People, the kids are like, mom, like, why can't I have a therapist? Jimmy has a therapist. Yeah. Um, but like even beyond that, like the kids growing up today are, you know, living in a world that's like radically different from the one that we grew up in. They are on all of these different social media, TikTok, um, and like where my social network was, you know, being surrounded by kids from Montgomery, Alabama. Um, kids today are like growing up, making friends like across the country, like seeing kids sort of from all around the world being open about their mental health on social media platforms. And I think having conversations like sort of breaks down that stigma and sort of frees them up to talk about that. Now, whether or not, um, you know, kids talking about trauma, um, you know, there are some kinds of trauma that are by the DSM trauma. Um, and then there are sort of other kinds of trauma that maybe wouldn't be considered, uh, you know, like physical, sexual, emotional abuse. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I am curious what kinds of traumas the kids at your school are talking about. Is it like, you know, like Chris cut me in line or like Kathy stole my Cheetos or like, is it like other kinds of like more profound things? It's like, I think it's like childhood type of teasing or whatever. They're just using that as a, as a word because they know that it is a powerful word. I'll mm. tell you this much. The, what they've traumatized me by is their body odor. <laughs> in the hallways. Yes. Uh, I mean, it's, it's more like sixth and seventh. And yeah. the teachers are like, you know, Fun you can. Are, are you, are you going to start wearing a mask? You know, because like everyone gets sick. I was like, yeah, for the BO, not for COVID. <laughs> are like, you having flashbacks right now? Or are you like re-experiencing the experience of walking down the hallway? and Well, we're like onions? sitting next to one of the kids, like trying to help him write his paper. And I'm like, oh. this kid stinks. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like you feel oh. bad being like, you put on some deodorant. We'll just get them all deodorant sticks for Christmas. Mm-hmm. But year. you also need a good deodorant. And that's why today we are sponsored by... No. <laughs> <laughs> I actually... I fifth grade they like had a class and they gave out free deodorant i don't know i remember getting like a bag (laughs) i'm having a flashback (laughs) do do you remember how they divide so in fifth grade we went to the same elementary school they divided the girls and the boys that's what i'm thinking and i don't know if i'm gonna keep this or edit it out because i know this is like gonna be very divisive i'm gonna say so they gave the girls a a female um speaker right to teach about the, the the female anatomy and the changes that our girls are going through. <laughs> Just a heads up. They gave the boys a masculine presenting lesbian woman to, to do the voice. Wait, to- <laughs> what did yours? I don't remember. You're gonna. You might edit this out. The name. The name of the person that did it was Miss. Which sounds, she wasn't a teacher. She was like brought in for health or like something like this. Like, I can't she was, that. it was Miss, which is already a very androgynous type of name to have. But, anyways, she was in there talking about like nocturnal emissions and BO oh. and everything. <laughs> and it's, she's very masculine presenting. She has short hair. She just is very masculine. And I remember the teacher was like, this. 
does anyone have any questions? And I don't know what compelled me to ask this, but I said, yeah, is that a man or a woman? You <laughs> oh <my laughs> <laughs> threw me out of the class. But th- look at- <laughs> you traumatized that teacher. This was after she left the room. I didn't do it in, in, in front of her. But looking back on it, this just seems like an awfully confusing way of presenting this information to kids. And I don't know why when there was a room full of male teachers, it would be a masculine presenting woman doing it. But that that's what it was. And it is really weird. I've, to this day, I've never had a wet dream and I blame. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, I mean, in, in my school, uh, right, like the, the girls went with uh, with like a, a, a female coach and like we had we had coach Lucky. His name was Coach Lucky. Oh, wow. he, he taught me everything I know to this day about male reproduction. Okay. And, um, and which sex offender registry can we find him on? <laughs> <laughs> Coach Lucky. <laughs> I don't, How I many don't feet away from the schools does he have to stay away from? Now? He's like very tall. He had like a former career and like i don't know like minor okay. minor league baseball or something and he would just like always walk around and just we had like a jaw full of dip and so he'd be like yeah yeah today we're gonna be uh, we're gonna be talking about like uh, ejaculation <laughs> yeah, anyway. if that's not the alabama way of learning about sex i don't know what it is yeah. yeah i just remember you like you know like like ah, oh, like where's my spit cup? He's like looking under the like the podium. Uh, There's two ways to end sex. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Evan, did you have like? Do you remember your sex talk? Yeah, I mean, we definitely had a sex ed class, and I remember having that kind of conversation with people, you know, in college and after college and stuff, being like, you know, parents don't have that conversation with their kids. They leave it to the schools, and the schools tell them about it in a very academic way with like no real emotion behind it nothing like really talking about the real experience about it did your dad ever have a talk oh no no, no. have you (laughs) met my dad yeah Yeah. that's why i want to hear about it if he did yeah my my parents never had like a flat out conversation either it was almost like you learned from like the shows that were on or i remember there was a kid the worst ways to learn exactly (laughs) i remember a a kid from uh elementary school uh went over his house and he like took out his dad's like playboy magazine or even maybe it was like penthouse where it's like actually showed like sexual graphic images yeah you either learn like that way through school or from people that don't know like your friends and you're just like talking about it but no one actually knows anything and so yeah. you're just like theorizing. My mom wasn't like always in the picture when I was little she is now and so my like aunts would try to have like weird talks with me and I remember like knowing what they were doing and I was like Ugh, please don't talk to me about this right now. <laughs> I know it's like such an uncomfortable discussion but I feel like having a daughter it's a, it might be a little bit more I guess it's pressing for either but it's like they don't want a teen pregnancy or anything like that. So it's yeah. like something that just has to be done since the chastity belt went out of style. You know? <laughs> well, everything well, it's very Massachusetts back, right? of you to say. It I, mean, you know, I come from like the capital of teen pregnancies. In fact, we celebrate that. Oh, back that's home. true. <laughs> Girl shows about it. The home of teen moms. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> do, you, do you feel like it's more um, encouraged down there? Or it's like if you're, I mean, we had the pregnancy pact in Massachusetts. Remember, there was like oh, yeah. a bunch of girls in high school that all got pregnant at the same time. Oh yeah. What? What? You don't remember hearing <laughs> I don't about, think this? I knew about Emily, this? Do you remember hearing about <laughs> I this? I do remember. There was a group of pack. maybe it was like 
eight or ten girls at the same school that like all got pregnant at the same time. In Massachusetts, I think there's a lifetime, Massachusetts. I think there's a lifetime movie. Yeah, they can find <laughs> it. it sounds, sounds like right. it, but I remember by it, dads or yeah, yeah, was, yeah. There, was <laughs> there one man at the center? Let's of make this packed. one man yeah. have eight kids. Genghis Khan. No, it wasn't. Yeah, the one dad was Flavor Flav. <laughs> <laughs> What's up? <laughs> yeah, so that was like a big deal because there was like a politically charged issue with everything, and it, they all wanted to keep their kids, and like they were still going to school. Which uh, do you you feel like you see more of uh, teen pregnancies down there? Well, um, how can I put this? I went to a private school where uh, uh, if a girl got pregnant, she would be expelled, but not the really? guy. Yeah. Um, wow. Sounds about so, right. Yeah, so there were no uh, at least visible pregnancies um, in my school. And then, um, you know, I think sort of the further out you go into rural areas, um, you know, it just becomes, uh, I think, you know, more and more common. Um, my partner uh, is from a rural town in Alabama. And I mean, she had classmates who, you know, were pregnant, I think, as early as ninth grade. Oh um, my god. Yeah. So um it's a thing that happens. I wouldn't say it's necessarily encouraged, but um yeah, it uh This it is I guess what you're talking about too, like pussification, like with kids <laughs> and things like that. Cause like part of me is like, you know, it, and maybe not always with like teen pregnancy, but part of me is like, you know, kids need a good old fashioned scare. Like if I got pregnant, my dad would murder me. Like I, I would be so scared. So maybe daddy issues has a lot to do with it, but I don't know. Like it's so good that kids are more aware of like men, you know, mental health and like there's more communication and there's definitely like I mean I have like anxiety issues and things. So maybe like our parents like fear tactic was in like punishment wasn't always the best but i don't know i feel like in some ways it's good and definitely i, I think like for me there, there's like such like a financial fear of having a child when you're not ready because it's going to take so much of your resources to jump into that lifestyle and i feel like almost nowadays with like teen mom the show and like the tiktok type of culture i don't know if this is true but maybe kids feel more like well actually i could actually maybe even possibly make a career out of this i remember reading i think yeah. somewhere on reddit that this girl's sister was like trying to get pregnant at 16 to try to get on teen mom oh and God. i just feel like that is like your chance of getting on that tv show is so small and you're gonna have this kid i don't know how people don't have the fear more like especially at my work like i'm just like some of the people getting pregnant, I'm just like, oh my god! Like, how are you not scared? Like, I mean, I you know, I'm talking to people homeless who are pregnant. Like, how are you not scared? Like, it's so scary. You're homeless. Like, and you're gonna bring a child into this, and God forbid if that kid has any health issues or disabilities, forget about it. Like, how are you not terrified? And yeah. I don't understand. But I think it's, they're just so they're, sad. They're not fully really digesting what's about to happen they're like no it'll be like cute it'll be like a, f a friend the happiest time of my life yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> that's what i'm told yeah <laughs> I, even when i see homeless people with dogs it like makes me like super upset because the dog is like next to them probably malnourished and just like sitting there on the cement it's like i get it you want companionship but i feel like there you have to meet some basic requirements of living before yeah. Before you're like, taking care of another life form. 
Yeah, if you can't, like, it sounds terrible and it sounds so mean, but, like, if you can't take care of yourself, why are you, like, trying to take care of something, like, focus on yourself? But then that's a whole other issue, which I'm sure you see, like, homelessness and mental illness and, oh, it's just so, it's all so sad. Like, it's just sad. Do you, so, um, in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and a lot of cities in this country, you see the homeless that have a lot of, like, mental health issues, like schizophrenia, where they're... Like they're sing, they're singing, and they're speaking to people that aren't visible. Like they're acting out things, and they, they're basically in this completely different reality. Do you think these are all sensory stimuli in their mind, or are they actually like perceiving things that like we can't see, but they can? And it's almost, are, you think they're like experiencing another dimension do you think it's all self-produced i guess is what i'm asking um you know i i think sort of what you're describing is um you know it sounds like you're describing having seen people who may be psychotic sort of experiencing a different version of reality than um you know i or you might experience and so um you know, I, I'm not sure if this gets at your question, but having talked to folks who have experienced psychosis, I get the sense that for um, a lot of a lot of them, that what they're experiencing is quite real to them. They might be hearing voices, um, or maybe more rarely seeing things that aren't there, and sort of responding to them. But um, you know, they experience those things as as just as real as you're experiencing my voice in the room right now. Right. Yeah. So it's the question is like, what's real and what's not real? Because if to them, the sound of my voice is the same as like another voice they're hearing that no one else is experiencing, then how are they going to be able to differentiate between the two? Yeah. And sometimes it's it's hard for them to do that, right? Like um, sometimes if, you know, I'm, I'm talking to someone and they're hearing voices that I might not be able to hear it can actually be really distracting for them. They they can't sometimes attend to the conversation that I'm trying to have because, you know, they have another voice sort of vying for their attention. Um, and so, you know, I think just like, like sort of you hinted at, the difference is probably um, it just boils down to like, is there some stimulus underlying the experience? Like my vocal cords are rubbing together to produce my voice that you're perceiving. Um, but for voices that, other people hear that you and I might not hear, um, that stimulus might not, it doesn't exist. Yeah, but nonetheless, they still hear the voice just as real as, as my own. Yeah, room. real enough to them. Yeah. It, yeah, it's their, it's their reality. So that's how they respond to it. Do you feel like those type of people that are dealing with that without the intervention of like family or counseling, like is it inevitable that it's just going to eventually lead to homelessness? Because I imagine those voices get more paranoid or more detached than more from reality. How do you do simple things like drive a car, go to a job? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I, I think one thing that training in psychiatry so far has, um, how can I put it? I, I think one thing that I, I value sort of about the psychiatric education is like this idea that there are many fine ways of being in the world um, that are different from, you know, what I might want for myself. So there are people who right now are, um, you know, living in downtown Boston, they're unhoused, they're experiencing these symptoms, and um, they're perfectly fine with their lives. Um, and that's okay. You know, if they're not, um, you know, a danger to themselves or other people, 
um, and are able to sort of fend for themselves and take care of themselves, then um, there are a number of psychiatrists. I sort of count myself among them in, in a lot of cases that, um, you know, we, we shouldn't be locking people up just because they hear voices, you know what I mean, uh, for involuntary treatment. Um, but, you know, I think to your point too, right, there, that's sort of held in tension with this like question of, um, could things be different for this person, right? Right. They, they, these individuals, they probably aren't going to be able to succeed in the way that society is set up currently, but they can find their own version of happiness or success for their own life as long as they're not harming themselves or others. Mm-hmm. You, you see this a ton in Los Angeles, and a lot of these individuals are – um, they have cell phones and they're even on like some of the apps like Grinder or something. And some of them are hot. Like, I'm, I'm not going to lie. Like, so how do you know this, Stevie? The, they are like some are attractive and it's like, OK, I know this is like I shouldn't be engaging with this person this way because they're not mentally sound. Mm. But sometimes like you're like, am I homosexual? You, you like he's kind, he's kind of attractive. You know, like, <laughs> I was talking to this one guy. I was like. Oh hey, where do you live? And he's he's like, I'm in the park, like <laughs> I'm in the park, like on your street. He's like, Can I come over and shower? And I'm like, With me? He's like, No. And I'm like, <laughs> oh. oh, okay, like yeah. I, I get it now. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Not, so, not something I should indulge in. I remember one time I was going to pick up <laughs> Thai food at this restaurant and there was this homeless man. This was this was last year where after the pandemic, homelessness like spiked so much and everyone kind of just like looked the other way, law enforcement did. And there was a homeless man like right in front of the restaurant that was like masturbating. Mm-hmm. Like he's naked in front of the restaurant masturbating. And I remember I walked in to get my food and I told the hostess, I was like, oh, there's a, there's a guy masturbating in front of the restaurant. And her response was, just try to walk around him. It's like, <laughs> since when did that become the protocol? I didn't know if I should open up Yelp or OnlyFans. I was like, <laughs> what is happening? LA is just... It depends on what your definition of harm to others is, right? I mean, like, he's it's ostensibly he's breaking I know. the law. She's like, well, did you at least finish him off? I was like, it's getting too liberal here. It's like, how am I to blame for this? And so now you're back in Massachusetts. So now we're engaged. No, <laughs> I want to uh, shift topics here a little bit. You are in what is known as an ethically non-monogamous relationship with your wife. That's right. right? Yeah. How long have you been in this lifestyle and what's it like? Like a year today. I think actually your anniversary. This is my Ian anniversary. Perhaps. And how long have you been married? Uh, we've been married for like just over <laughs> <laughs> just over five years now. Okay. Yeah. Do you feel like it's a trend that is happening more and more? And I wanted to hear Emily and Evans' take on uh, non-monogamy. And is this something like for me? It's always something that's been on my mind as something that I would eventually have to accept or assimilate because it is big in the gay community. You don't see all that much monogamy, but now you're starting to see in heterosexual couples, it's gravitating towards this as well. So I'm wondering, Evan, like what is your take on that? And do you think society is moving towards that or more open to it? Yeah. I mean, I think society in general is shifting to kind of like individualism, so I think it starts with the the kids and it obviously it, it goes on throughout adulthood where it's becoming, I think, more and more acceptable to just be who you are 
And I think people are understanding that everyone should kind of dictate who they are and what they want to do. It's like it starts with gender identity. It goes through, um, you know, religion, occupation, like all sorts of things. And I think it's I think it's really great. I think it's going to cause a lot of um, friction with so many people having so many different opinions and so many different lifestyles. It's 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 going to be a big shift from like where it has been, where it was kind of just like rigid. It's like you were born here. You're this race. You're going to do this thing. You're going to be this gender. So I think it's I fully agree that everyone should kind of like dictate how they want to live their life. That being said, um, when it comes to relationships, both people need to be okay with it. Um, that's when it's not so much individual when especially when it comes to like a marriage, I think that's when it's like a really strong commitment. And all all I think that is the bottom line of importance is that both parties are on board with what's going on. I think if one person wants one thing, the other person wants another thing, it's just there's no way it's going to work out. And so as far as non-monogamy goes, it's like if both people are into it and that's what makes them happy, I think that's amazing. And if people don't want that and they just want to be together, I also think that's amazing. But again, if you have one of the other, that's when it's going to be like a really sad time. <laughs> I, I think it's like almost tied into the... Uh old-fashioned nuclear household or um, the workforce, whereas women and men create a bond that provides for, provides for them and their family in like multiple ways. Women hundreds of years ago were dependent on men and were told to stay at home while the men financially supported them. So you're going to have this union with them and you're not going to deviate from it. But it's almost like now that women and men are equal in the workforce, or at least that's that's the idea. They're supposed to be like everyone's working. I feel like those type of ideals and that paradigm is like breaking away more. And yeah. I think that coupled with the divorce rate and people wanting to not deny anymore that like, hey, like maybe we do want to have other experiences and we can have other experiences in a way that we do this together or in a partnership where we can have that fun and we're not repressing the needs that we have and we can do this in a healthy way where we feel like we can have more experiences together. That being said, I don't even want my boyfriend having a prostate exam. With <laughs> I'm like, can you do a multiple choice one? I think it's so great. And I think that like all this stuff has been happening since the beginning of time. But it's like our parents and our grandparents' generation, they acted like they were so perfect, but they were not. Yeah. And so it's like, Just why not? not be open it just seems more respectful to me like rather than like cheating on someone or going behind their back or sweeping things under the rug like just being honest with everything i don't know but i think that seems good and i have a lot of questions about it. oh well uh i'm here uh, so happy to answer um i would I, I would just say like to to highlight i think that um you know it's interesting right in massachusetts it's like the first place i think in cambridge arlington and somerville where um, sort of polyamorous partnerships are being recognized. And I think the cities may be issuing like sort of licenses to allow for partnerships, domestic partnerships with like three um, rather than two people. Really? Um, so like, I think we're seeing some level of like social and like, um, like policy change around this, um, which I, you know, I think is great. I think to your point, um, 
you know, I, I think that it is something that everyone sort of has to be on board with. And I think um, just, it, it seems to be like a theme for the night, right? Like no one size fits all. Like monogamy is great for some people. It's not great for other people. But, um, you know, sort of figuring out who you are and, and living sort of congruently with that is, I think, part of at least what I feel like makes me feel mentally well. Yeah, and I think not being in like a serious relationship is also for a lot of people. I think that there's some pressure that you need to find at least one person or, you know, a, yeah. a, you know, two people, whatever it is that you need to have this like serious relationship with. That's going to like be a long term thing that you're just going to spend the rest of your life with. And some people don't need that or, or shouldn't have that. And I, and I think that it should be completely fine to live that life and yeah, not feel guilt or expectation about it or anything yeah and it's kind of weird too like if you like really just like think about it like it's almost like handmaid's tale to be yeah. like you know you need we're not going to recognize your rights like you need to be in a male and female marriage like it's really weird it's like why right. why do we have these when like, people spend so much energy norms? for that <laughs> yes Right, like you, you look at what's been sort of the the norm over the past several centuries. But like as as time has gone on, right, like gay marriage is now the law of the land, um, at least in a couple of cities in eastern Massachusetts. Polyamorous partnerships are now recognized. That there's like some sense that, right, like these are things that have been going on, like gay relationships, um, gay stable partnerships, polyamorous partnerships have been going on for much longer than they have been legal in our society <laughs> and that it takes some time, right, for sort of um, the framework and the society that we live in to catch up with actually like the human experience, something that's been happening and will continue to happen for the rest of existence. I feel like uh, the genders, ma the male and female energies have almost like been at odds with each other over the restraints that are put into society in a number of different ways. But even if you look at marriage, the term, the old ball and chain is like mm -hmm. used to personify like the marriage. But it's like, why are we bringing that kind of negative energy into something like you're stuck with this person and it's, it's causing resentment within. And it's like, you don't have to follow these rules, but I feel like culturally, and that's starting to change now, but culturally for so long, it's like, no, you can't get separated or you can't stray from this because there's their cultural ramifications and you're going to be judged and everything. So it's almost like men and maybe women, too, to some degree, use the outlets of like strip clubs and those type of things to express that energy instead of just doing it in a natural way by having an, an honest, open conversation. My main question is, how do you deal with jealousy or any... Maybe you don't experience that, but I know personally that would be something that I would yeah. struggle with because even like the, the idea of someone that I'm in love with, even being in like a threesome with them, I feel like that would trigger me in a way where it would make me feel insecure. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a great question and I think, you know, um, it, my answer will sort of track along lines that we've already been talking about. That is to say... I do experience jealousy, um, and I think that what makes E&M a, a good choice for me and my partner is that we do experience jealousy um, about sort of each other and, and other relationships, but rather than um, 
as it might be in a lot of relationships working as a destructive force, we accept it. Um, we sort of are curious about why we're feeling that way and use it to guide us about like, you know, is there something that we're not, you know, giving each other that we might want or need? Um, and it sort of helps, you know, frame discussions about like where our relationship is at, um, what we might be doing differently for each other. And like at the end of the day, um, I think that we both like to see each other happy like that. I think we prioritize and prize more than jealousy. And so we accept that jealousy is sort of a natural part of most stable, long-term romantic relationships. And accepting that, we sort of use that as a way to improve our own relationship and sort of instead prioritize and celebrate each other's happiness when it happens. That's so nice. And that seems like what true love is. The big thing that triggers me is that if I have feelings for someone and they're having an interaction with someone else. That's what I can feel in my chest. The anxiety, mm. it like it consumes me. And I know that means I'm insecure. But also, like, how do you get past that without taking ayahuasca? Like, <laughs> I, I, I wish I could tell you. I mean, I think that the word I keep coming back to is acceptance. There has to be some level of acceptance that for your partner, um, I, I think for most people, I, I, I struggle to make like blanket statements here, but I think for most people, like it's unrealistic to think that you can be all things for someone at all times. Oh, I know. I tell my I tell myself that lie all the time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? that's a yeah. good point. Um, I'm I'm so sorry to interrupt, but I no, have like so good. many questions too. Do you have rules? Like, do you guys like date other people? Can you only hook up with other people? Do you have to introduce? Yes. Do you have to tell you, them about? Do you have to tell about every so person? Like she feels like she's a part of it too. Yes. Do you ever hang out with the other person? I, yeah. I'm so. Curious. Yeah. No. All good questions. I mean, I think that, right. So the, the the three letter acronym is E N M, ethical non monogamy, and so, I think a lot of it centers around like what does ethical mean well, exactly yeah right? and so like how and i think for each you know for any sort of um couple and uh, that we could be talking about everyone has sort of different roles and different ways that they might navigate um sort of non-monogamy i mean in, in my relationship my, we're sort of we are hierarchical um so that means that we are sort of we consider each other primary partners um, that for major life decisions, job things, um, legal documents, leases, finances, like all of that stuff um, we do together and no one else is sort of like allowed into that space, um, which often feels more like traditional spousal things. Um, but otherwise, um, you know, we're allowed to um, like hook up with or even date other people. Um, we both like to know about sort of the other person, who they are, what they're like. Um, we typically don't meet the other person unless there's like some, you know, mutual interest all around. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, it's really all about sort of communicating about like, who am I seeing? Where am I? Like, what are we doing? Um, and like, are you being sort of thoughtful and safe? about it yeah. and yeah. i apologize too if any of these questions are like too personal oh, no, you don't have no, to answer not. any of yeah. them but i also was curious too like do you ever get scared that you're gonna lose her and not like saying that like you should be she's gonna like, get kidnapped i think like i actually worry about that i feel like i worry about i feel like if anything 
Um, <laughs> so, I was thinking that you should find someone she feels more in love with or compatible. Because that is you. the, the that fear would, at the root yeah. of the jealousy that mm. it's like if she meets this other person or the person I'm with meets another person, it's like I do like this person better. But at the like, same time, if you're in that kind of committed relationship, I feel like part of it is having that confidence that they could meet literally every other person in the world and still want this this I, primary relationship i think that's a great i think that's a great point and i think that's sort of what we feel for each other is that you know at this point we've been together we'll have been together a total of 10 years next month and that we've been through so much together and and not to say that that couldn't happen um i don't think it will and you know it's just like we have we have a lot of history together we've built sort of our lives around um you know each other and together um and so, yeah, I just, I don't imagine that happening. It just doesn't seem like something that I, I well, would sort of And it happens happen. to people who are monogamous. <laughs> right. <laughs> they, they, meet, they, they meet someone and they're like, oh, you know what? There are sparks flying here that. That's and then I think there's, there's too. like this feeling that like in that case, like then that person has to sort of be hidden and you're sort of yeah. balancing, like I have to balance this relationship with that relationship. And you're not sort of talking about o and openly processing the emotions yeah. that you're feeling. I think really that's like a cornerstone of, our ethically non-monogamous relationship is that we're constantly sort of checking in with each other and talking about sort of our emotions and what we're thinking and feeling. Um, and when about you, each other which and you partners. can argue, you have a stronger relationship <laughs> than most monogamous people. Like, yeah, because it's real. I mean, yeah. it's, it's real, and that's I think awesome. Your communication. You're, yeah, because yeah. you're like communicating some of the most difficult things for yeah. couples to communicate. Yeah, and and it, the communication has to be, I mean, and, and that's not to say we don't make mistakes and communication can't fail or fall apart, but um, that that's really like a central focus of, um, of sort of our relationship is, you know, making sure that our communication is sharp and um, just checking in with each other a lot. Oh, and who is the first to initiate this conversation uh, about doing was this. Was it something that was like put on the table <laughs> like yeah. Did you like say it at the exact same time? Was it like saying that? must have been scary. <laughs> it was me. I mean, I think I think for her it was actually like a, a, a years-long process where I sort of floated the idea um, and it made her quite uncomfortable at first because she was like, I don't, I don't even see how like if we were both consenting to something that um, that wouldn't be cheating. I think she had a lot of sort of, as we've talked about, there are a lot of sort of social pressures and expectations. Oh, like, totally. Like, what is a marriage? What is a monogamous relationship? What is failure yeah. in, in, the, in that context? Yeah, and so I think she had to work through a lot of those, um, you know, those concerns that she had. And like I said, I, it took a, a number of years for her to sort of get to the point. And, and I just remember like one night she said, you yeah, know, I've been doing a lot of thinking. And um, ultimately, like, I think that, you know, like, I'm open to sort of this is about openness of experience and I'm I'm open to sort of the experience of seeing other people like I yeah maybe it, and I, I think there's almost like this biological element too that like as we were talking about it as we were opening it up that like you know maybe some humans are meant to have monogamous relationships and there are clear like biological and evolutionary advantages to that but look at the divorce rate. Look at why a lot of marriages oh, end. Yeah, I mean, um, right? Like they often end because it's a monogamously constructed relationship, and there's, um, you know, cheating or infidelity or whatever, and um, it's intolerable and it falls apart. So finding, you know, sort of if if you can tolerate this and it's something that you're sort of open to. Did you guys start with like adding a person or are you both kind of like let's both explore individually uh some of it was a bit of both at the same time 
I feel like if I was going to open my relationship, I would do it like a gradual, almost like a Anthony Fauci method. Like, no more than six people. <laughs> Has to be done outside. Show your vaccination card. Masks for masks. I don't know. It's definitely something I always think about because I've never had that like long-term monogamous relationship and I know I want that, but I also know a part of me when I hit a certain number of years with that person, it's probably going to sink in and I'm scared of it because it's like, what am I not like, what am I living for? But like, if I'm holding out for this like, great relationship, but then that is going to like take a turn, then like, what am I even doing? Like, you know what I mean? Well, it sounds like you don't quite know what you want. I don't, I don't, I don't know what I want. <laughs> I want to be able to do what I want, but they can't. Oh, <laughs> no, you I know see. what? Maybe yeah. you can find someone out there no, like I, that. I, I don't want to do that. Like, I don't know. I just don't want any, I don't want to be experiencing those like negative emotions of feeling like I'm less than or I'm being cheated on. Hmm. I think a lot of that's also tied into like, my career pursuits it's almost like if i can reach this level of success then like even if this person rejects me or leaves me or chooses someone else well i still have a netflix special like it's i know it's like such, it's such a this is like the name of the game of hollywood of like why people pursue this and i understand why it's such a unhealthy this is it's it's probably the most unhealthy facet of why i pursue this career all the other things are based on creativity and enjoying it but I know there's a part of me that's like, it's almost like a defense that I have to validate myself where it's like, well, this person didn't want me or this person like found someone better, but like, can they do this? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, right. I mean, it, it sounds like there are a lot of sort of insecurities weighing on you, like in Definitely. terms of why, why someone would or wouldn't want you, um, sort of what, what your career might or might not develop into. Um, and this feeling that like if you sort of keep chasing some ring, some like golden, yeah. you know, if I could just grab the golden ring, that um, things would be okay. Yeah, I've made benchmarks. It's like once I get on Hulu, like they can get a hand job. When I'm on Netflix, <laughs> they can get ahead. When I have an HBO special. Fuck whoever you. Want. <laughs> it's definitely something where I, I know that this is direction where like things are going in in general. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just interesting because even a lot of the straight couples I know, I feel like it's not said explicitly, but I feel like they go on vacations and it's like, it's okay. Whereas before it would be like, my parents, for example, if that happened, it would be like a meltdown. You cheated. I'm divorcing you or we're getting into counseling to like nip this in the bud. But I, I feel like it's just, it's a more acceptable acceptable thing and i think that's good because we're learning that you complete yourself and give yourself all the love you need and the other person that you're in a relationship with adds to that it doesn't fill up an emptiness it overflows your already full cup Mm -hmm. of semen it's (laughs) it i I think that is really the, the the best thing that it does but i know that that's a tall order for a lot of people because a lot of people it's like you get sucked into these relationships you're like okay this person's validating me and giving me my sense of self-worth like i need them to continue to give me that validation because i don't have it mm-hmm. and a lot of people don't want to take that time to be single to really put in that 
in her work. And you see it a lot in the gay community where people want to jump into these relationships because it's like, I've been through all these traumas and I want you to heal me of that. Well, it's mm-hmm. like exactly the same as substance abuse. Yeah. You're trying to get, get an external goal or feeling to fix an internal thing. Yeah. And so that's why I think going through that jealousy, going through those negative feelings, that's when you grow the most. Actually, on uh, uh, Dex Shepard's podcast, he talks about all the time. He's like, he had financial insecurity as a kid. And he's like, okay, I have a number in my head. Once I make that much money, I'm, I'm going to stop worrying. I'm going to be set. And he's like, and I got to that limit and I still felt the same. He's like, okay, if I like date this this really attractive celebrity, then I'm going to look at my, in, in the mirror and I'm going to see Brad Pitt. He's like, I started dating that person and I woke up the next morning. I looked at myself. I was like, still my ugly face in the mirror. It's like, you can't you can't reach out to try to fix something inside. Yeah. And you can't put happiness into the future. I'll be happy if I'll be happy when, because yeah, yeah, yeah. you're still putting it to the future, which doesn't exist and putting it to the outside, which doesn't exist in that right. sense. Yeah. I'm we'll definitely guilty of that happy. too. It's, it's the way, soci- it's the way yeah. society set up. Like you're encouraged to be like that every step of the way you yeah. have to, you need this toy. You need this. Yeah. You have to literally like do the opposite of what's being, thrown in your face to actually go in and be like no i don't need these things i don't need to look this way but it's like that's how you're made to feel constantly yeah yeah i mean i think that if there's like something that i've I've learned in my work it's that um mental health has something to do with mental flexibility right and so if you define your happiness in terms of i'll be happy if xyz happens it's actually quite inflexible um, right. Um, it's it, not to say it's bad to set goals, um, but at the same time, sort of uh, making your happiness um, or your joy in your life contingent on like other things happening um, is sort of a setup. Yeah, for failure. <laughs> yeah. I have like a lot of perfectionist characteristics, which like my therapist currently now who I started seeing who I love I found someone so great I found him in like the summertime because my other person Mm -hmm. retired but he's been really really helpful and it kind of like reminds me that because I'm like a perfectionist and so like I don't know just like if I didn't work out so many hours like or so many times this week or just like all the stupid little stuff that I worry about I was feeling so much like guilt because like I'm like you know, I feel guilty that I didn't do this. But then I feel guilty that I'm feeling guilty about this because there's people dying of cancer and who cares that I didn't work out this many times. And he was like, I, you, you have like such a perfectionist way of like looking at things and like, who cares if you didn't work out? You worked out two times, instead of three times. Like, why do you put your expectations? Like, I'm always feeling like I'm a failure. You're like, and, like, I care, actually. Yes. I care. Yes. <laughs> and like setting like these like unrealistic expectations. It's, I think for it's myself. about being and nicer like, to yourself. And it's like, it's so easy to be your biggest critic and mm-hmm. running these like post mortems through your mind. If someone says, Hey, what's up? And you're like, Good. <laughs> I can answer that correctly. It's like, you'll run these post mortems and you'll, you'll punish yourself. And, when you're not kind to yourself, I feel like it just lowers your self-esteem more and more and more to run these things through your head that something as simple as like, oh, I didn't work out. Like, oh, I didn't work. I didn't do that right. You did the wrong thing. And it's, I get it. It's very tough to actually quiet that voice. Yes. But I feel like you have to just be like, this is in the past. I didn't work out. There's no way that I can go back into the past and work out on that set date and time. So... I will work out in the future and get back on track if that's what I want to do. Yeah. You really have to just go, fuck this voice. It's a voice from the past and it's irrelevant. It's like, it's completely irrelevant. I'm giving it my energy, but 
it's an irrelevant voice from the past. He's definitely like helped me more than anyone in my like any therapist in my life has helped me to like be able to quiet that voice. I'm not perfect at it, which like I'm accepting that I'm not going to be, but even like work on Friday, I picked up overtime. I've been picking up overtime and one of my biggest anxieties is like if I feel like I didn't like I sniffed at someone or mm-hmm. didn't have the best response or wasn't 100% my best self for like a patient and I actually like was complaining about a patient and like what to one of the nurses and she was like, "Oh, there was another patient in the hallway." And like I was like, "Fuck." <laughs> And like, and normally I'd let those things like eat away at me like all weekend and like, and also too, if you probably talk to my coworkers, they're like, that was you like snipping, that was you being mad. And I'm like, yeah, that was, but like, I did apologize because I just felt like I just wasn't myself and I was tired and irritable and it was super busy. And normally I would be like stewing about it all weekend and feeling guilty, but I'm doing a better job being like, I had an imperfect day. I wasn't my best self, but you know what? You're not going to have days that you're always right. your best self. Well, and you're that's human. Okay. And there's, there's acceptance. Right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think Come that's on back to that. There's acceptance. I feel like there's no such thing as a perfect day. You can have like degrees of happiness and productivity, but everything you do is going to deviate from perfection in some way even if you don't even realize it you could have not held the door open for the person behind you and they they were like oh what the hell this girl's a bitch the door just slammed my face but that you know what i mean it's like you just have to go into each day and try your best but i think also you're very uh tuned into not wanting every, wanting everyone else to be happy too so you perceive things yeah. where it's like oh my god like i'm so sorry i, I hope this person didn't hurt this person and everyone's like you didn't do anything, but you're, that's a good trait. You're, you're so tuned in, but I think it's like, you got to also care about yourself too. And don't punish yourself at the expense of like a, per- a perceived slight of someone who passed you in the hallway. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate I mean, that patient flatlined after they heard that. That's for the court to decide. Oh, sorry. I, I, didn't <laughs> I didn't clarify that too. The patient I was bitching about didn't hear me. She was, was calling in. It was another patient who was being impatient and in the hallway when she should have been waiting in her room, which <laughs> I have my own qualms about. But um, but yeah, no, it was she was calling in and I was complaining about her because she's just been brutal this entire pregnancy. But she's she's done. She's had the baby, so... Congrats to her. I hope that she never gets pregnant ever again. <laughs> or at least moves first. She, no, if she doesn't... Oh, my God. She she doesn't want to be pregnant ever again. Oh, my God. That sounds terrible. No, if she wanted to have children out. again, uh, I would pray patient. that she would be able to. She but lost that Planned Parenthood sponsorship. <laughs> she, just, she said, <laughs> I never want to be pregnant again. This is it. And I'm happy for... Yeah, you're just trying to support her. her. She's That's achieving all. her family planning goals. Yes. Yeah. Proud of her for that. Oh, my God. If she wanted to get pregnant, I would never, ever wish that upon <laughs> my worst enemy <laughs> do you ever have any patients who are like in their 50s pregnant or like an age where you're like whoa I, I, I haven't had anyone pregnant in their 50s but in their 40s and uh, I'm always like wow that must be you know just so much more challenging but so happy for them I have a friend who just had his first kid at like 42 I think she's also around that age too and immediately starting in like on the TikToks and everything. I know you're different. So what is I'm wondering like what is your take on like kids and social media? Evan too. Like do you feel like Yeah, like, that's well, a really tough When Colton question. and your kids like get to an age where like they want to be on these platforms, are you going to be like 
no like we don't we don't want this are you that's a like i feel like that's like such a good question like and well number one the bizarroness of like our society and like feeling obligated to be on social media like is is bizarre too like i remember when i got pregnant with colton and still now that i'm pregnant as well um i don't like to put anything on social media my brother died as a baby. He was born with a very rare syndrome. It was horrible for my parents. And this is probably a little part of my OCD, but part of me feels like it's jinxing it if I share it with people. But then also, if God forbid something happens with this child, the people who know me and love me and who I talk to on a regular basis know I'm pregnant and it's no one else's business. And I remember like, I don't know, like even people just being like, oh, I didn't even know you were pregnant and you had a baby. Like, and it's like, well, yeah, fuck you. Like, <laughs> if we weren't talking, you don't have every right to know that I'm pregnant. And then it was a whole nother fight too with um, after Colton was born, we weren't sure our comfort levels on social media and the right. amount of pressure we got from certain family members to put him on social media and it's like well, this and, is bizarre and without permission sometimes yeah we had like that with our kids where it's like this uh, is bizarre that. <laughs> and it's bizarre that you feel this strong need to put my child on social media like right. just be happy to get to see them or take their picture and print it and hang it in your house that's fine but yeah, like it's like if you're gonna text your friends and people that are close to you yes. about like your like the new addition in your family that's one thing but just posting it to the internet ether I've, I, I don't know what that's like trying to say Cloud. yeah and for my yeah. children's future i'm yeah, terrified feel like for that, social media so, and colton and my daughter and so right the now it's like already elementary school kids like they're exposed to it or maybe like have accounts or like the middle school kids like they have smartphones do you think as time goes on that age is going to get lower where it's like third graders fourth graders or kids are just going to be born with a smartphone in their hand well oh, if you look scary. you look at like uh babies and toddlers their eyes lit up light up for like the the lcd screens and everything they gravitate towards it your 18 month old like she'll see the phone and like that's what they want the most I mean, they she, already she, interact she, with it before they yeah, speak words she, they're like interacting with she day trades so like <laughs> it makes sense yeah, like she's the third it's, income. Her, it's her livelihood <laughs> but is, do you guys have an idea like in your head of like an age where you're gonna allow that or are you just I've, I've had that discussion in my head so many times and I, I just, I hate it. I, I'm so fearful of it. I have no idea when it's really going to start and when our oldest is like really going to push for it. Cause there's part of me that's like, no, you're just like not going to actually have social media until you're at least 16 and you have like a better idea of what permanence is and like seeing all your friends making these terrible mistakes, posting stuff that's just going to be there forever. Yeah. And then there's part of me that's going to be like, am I going to ostracize her? Is she going to like be like a leopard of the class if she doesn't mm -hmm. have a smartphone mm -hmm. or uh, whatever platform kids are on? You know, TikTok and Instagram are still around Ex in 10 years. Exactly. Because what is what are the social media platforms even going to look like? Are they going to be full virtual reality worlds where your kids right. have like avatars? I mean, parents are already telling their kids to go to their Zoom instead of their room. I think it's already <laughs> like we're already getting into this virtual space. <laughs> Put on yes. your goggles. Go somewhere else. Go to your Zoom. That's a really good point, too. Oh. And who you know, knows? And then same thing, too, with, like, everything, I think, with kids. Like, alcohol, smoking, you know, a lot of it, too. I think if you put, like, a hard no on things, oh, then they do it behind your makes back. Makes it worse. Exactly. So she probably would have social media behind your back. Whereas, yeah. like, I don't know. I feel like as a parent, and hopefully, and it's never going to be perfect, I'm going to try to just be, like, pretty honest. And, like, that's, in that way. That's Amanda's <sighs> big thing. She's like, I just want my kids to be able to talk to me about anything 
at any point. That's like they feel comfortable doing it. They feel safe doing it. And that's what I'm totally on board with too is like I think honesty and communication is just the like real root to any relationship. It's the best policy, but it's still like so hard. It puts so much fear into parents because yeah. I, it's like some parents like it's like be transparent with me, be open and honest with me, but then the kids still put themselves in situations where it's like they're rolling the dice. So it's like it's still like it's still going to happen and it's almost like is there there really is no way to control that because kids at that age they just want to do what their peers are doing or what they think is cool to do at that age and i think you just hit it on hit on head like the real truth is like you can't control them no you You, can't you just can't and the more Mm -hmm. i feel like you try to and like really make a hard no on things the more they're going to want to do it yeah that's not healthy either like me and amanda we always knew scott would pick us up if we were drunk but we'd still (laughs) drive drunk to mcdonald's hit a curb and then drive on a flat and get pulled over and yeah just, and not get a ticket so. and not get anything get a, <laughs> if so your I guess dad it all picks you up out. you're okay right. like but it's like we're still gonna like still be idiots yeah my parents yeah. like wouldn't allow it and i i still did it and then had to like hide it more but i was still doing things that i shouldn't have been doing and it's well and truth be told i want my girls to go out and you know roll the dice for things and have adventures and you know, push their limits. I just want them obviously to do it as safe as possible. And I certainly want to know as much as I can, at least like where they might be. So I can like, I don't know, try to be like Liam Neeson and taken and <laughs> hunt them down if I need to. <laughs> well, at the very least, I feel like we're living in a time where Ubers and everything are so accessible. There's no really reason to be drinking and driving and hopefully they become yeah. automatic cars so available and <laughs> ubiquitous. That they're cheap that it's never even an option because I feel like that makes up the majority of the parents' fear. It's like, okay, they're going to a party. How are they going to get back home? How are they getting there? Are they going to get into a vehicle where when we were kids, it's like, well, I'm getting in the car with this person or this person said they're not drinking or this person is the least drunk person here and this person can't get an Uber. <laughs> I remember in our town, it was like, oh, you can call Sunshine Taxi. Yes. You can call Coach Lucky and you can get like, <laughs> you can get a hand job on the way home. If you want. <laughs> Ricky, I want to thank you for being here today. Yeah, uh, it was me. very enlightening. Thank you for teaching us all about psychiatry. And yeah, it was really interesting. About the E&M lifestyle. Here with Ricky Sieber. I'm Steve D'Amico, joined with Evan Spann and Emily Smith. Catch you guys next time. <laughs>